Okay, we're going to talk about um, dying today. Wow, everybody's, look how many people here. Okay. And I think it's always good to talk about death because it makes life just a little bit better. Now, as I'm doing my research for this talk, I came to understand that basically for a meditator, what the big issue is, is ego death. Because the body really doesn't know it's alive. And, and it's this ego that has been our friend for a whole life, that's kept us alive, that now is going to have to let us die. And it's going to die as well. So the Christians and the Buddhists have a much different way of looking at this stuff. Uh, this is, uh, but let me start with a little humor first for those who haven't heard this humor. Uh, this woman turned 104 years old in a local TV station, uh, sent a reporter to interview her. And during the interview, the reporter says, uh, what is the best part about being 104 and she said, no peer pressure. <laughs> okay. So they, they spoke to a woman who was 83 years old, who is a Christian, either Protestant or Catholic, and asked her what a good death was. She said, a good death is going to sleep and not waking up. To me, that is the best death there is. And I think that is the only one, or a quick one. I mean, not a long one, not a painful one, not a real painful one. I do not want to be in a lot of pain. And a good death would not last too long. I mean, you know, there would be the way, and that's how I would describe it. I don't want to be sick too long. Now they asked an 84-year-old man, what is a bad death? He said, a bad death is when you live too much and you take too long to die because it's better not to argue. You understand, with God, you should not be like that. And taking a long time to die annoys yourself and your family. <laughs> So I think, uh, for me, a fascinating part about this dying thing is we deal with the first cause, which would be God, and then we deal with the last cause, which would be God. And so for a Christian, uh, Jew or Muslim, perhaps they would say, how does God want to kill me? And I need to be respectful in this process because he knows what's best and he wouldn't give me anything that I couldn't handle. A Buddhist doesn't go there. A Buddhist has a much different model or paradigm to work with. And so I'm going to talk about it in a way that I hope will be interesting and understandable. And this is specifically for us North Americans and Europeans. Uh, the Asians are going to deal with it a little differently. Um, but I think for a Buddhist meditator, and that's who I'm going to speak to, a Buddhist meditator, we probably have two ways to die. One would be the Vipassana way, and one would be the Samatha way. Samatha is the tranquility meditation. Vipassana is the insight meditation. But before I get there, 
Someone once said, and the author is unknown, good health is simply the slowest way a human being can die. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of truth in that. A few weeks ago, I told this story before, but a few weeks ago I was speaking at the Simi Valley Center for Spiritual Living. And after my talk, a woman comes up to me, and she's 70 years old, and she says, I need to talk to you. And I said, yes. So we stepped aside, and conspiratorially, she said to me, I'm really afraid to die. I'm 70 years old, and I can't sleep at night. And all I can think about is dying, and I don't want to die. I'm really afraid. What should I do? Well, this is a profound question after a Sunday service talk that lasted 20 minutes, which included harmonica and ukulele. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what can I say to her? Because she's not like a Buddhist woman, you know, and so a, a Buddhist or a meditator, I might say something different. But to her, I said, who's going to die? And there was this pause and this confused look on her face. And, and I realized it was just too much too soon. So I, I said, you know, first we need to figure out who's going to die. And she says, well, I'm going to die. And I said, well, you're right in that. The I is going to die. But who are you? And, of course, this takes a lifetime you know, to reflect on and come to a conclusion of who you are, which for a Buddhist always turns out to be who you aren't. (laughs) And so we spoke a little bit, and then she left, but I don't think she was satisfied with my answer, and I don't think it helped her at all. But, but, you know, she wasn't a Buddhist, and and she maybe needed to talk to a Christian Jew, a Muslim, or a Wiccan, or something where where she could relate to this, because this is a very difficult question and problem and fear and anxiety that all of us may have at some point, and and we need to really speak clearly and be understood. So it's important to have the right people listening to you as you go through this stuff. A few thoughts. Number one, everybody must die. Number two, the remainder of our lifespan is decreasing continually. That's why after I turned 60, I didn't want people to say happy birthday to me anymore. It just means I'm that much closer to death. And I don't see anything happy about it. Just say birthday. (laughs) Death will come regardless of whether or not you have made time to practice the Dharma. Wow, this is really so important that we need to start today and continue our practice because we're going to be practicing to die. I'm going to get into that. Human life expectancy is uncertain. None of us know if today's the day, but the miracle about the human condition is today never seems like the day. There are many causes of death. If you watch the news, if you read the newspaper, everybody dies differently. No two people die in the same way. A lot of it has to do with karma. So it is amazing how many different ways we can die. The human body is very fragile. Absolutely. 
When you're 20, it's less fragile. But as you walk up that age ladder and start getting to the top, things just go out of whack for no reason at all. Your wealth cannot help you. In fact, it probably will hinder you because you have more reasons to stick around. (laughs) Our loved ones cannot help us. There is no one in your life who can help you die. No one. That's why we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That refuge is the only refuge we need in death. Our body cannot help. Michael Landon, I remember him? Pancreatic cancer, I remember him doing an interview. And by the pool, he did push-ups. And he said, see, see how physically strong I am? I can beat this. Our body cannot beat it. We have a time clock. It is ticking down. None of us get out of this alive. But it shouldn't really bum us out because every time we think about our own death, it should enhance our life. It should give us urgency. It should allow us to get up earlier in the morning and stay up later at night because none of us knows how much time we have. And there is like a lot of stuff to do before we check out. Now, a lot of times we feel that it's not fair and something or someone is against us and I'm going to curse that thing, whatever it might be, for not playing fairly with me. That it shouldn't happen to me. It could happen to everybody else, but you know what? I'm special. And you should recognize that as you curse the universal law of cause and effect or whatever you like to curse. But there's something called the five niyamas, the five reasons why stuff happens. And these have a lot to do with why we die and why we live and why we get sick. And the cool thing is there's five. And the reason that's cool is because you just can't point at one thing. See, if it's just one thing, you can really hate it. If it's two things, you can hate it less. If it's three things, just a little bit of hate for each one. But five things, it's really hard to hate it. So here we go. The first one is the law of physical matter. This includes seasonal changes, earthquakes, flood, gravity, and heat. And there are so many, many examples. So, you know, you break your leg because you were at the beach and the tsunami came in and washed you into the big mountain and you cursed, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but the earth didn't have anything out for you. The earth wasn't trying to do you in. You just happened to be at a beach where there was a small earthquake and a little tsunami and that's how it works. So it's not about you at all. It's about where you were. And I can remember that big tsunami that happened in Thailand a while back where people were saying it's God will or it's, it's karma and they're getting their comeuppance. And all these things were so ludicrous and overly simplistic in explaining this profound reaction that happened because of universal cause and effect. The second Niyama is the law of living matter. 
physical, organic order, like cells and genes and chromosomes and biology. So we are predisposed through birth to end up a certain way. It's not that people have something out for us. When I look at my head, I see my dad's hairline. I see the cause and effect of genes and chromosomes going to work. And no matter how much I wanted to have my hair, which in this current line of work would be useless, (laughs) it wasn't going to happen. So who am I going to blame? I guess I could blame my dad, but he had the same issue. The third niyama, or the third reason stuff happens, is karma. This is, this is the one we think causes everything, but really what we're talking about is intention, speech, and action. Karma is the moral aspect of why things happen. Karma is the morality behind all the stuff that goes right or wrong. And it's one of the five, it's not the only one. So what goes around comes around may well be the case sometimes, but then you're discounting the other four reasons, and they may be more important than karma. The fourth niyama is the dharma, the dharma aspect of why things happen. Now, in Buddhism, we have something called the abhidharma, the the psychology of Buddhism, and there's all sorts of mind states, and, and, and we have feelings and emotions, and, and it goes on and on and on forever and ever. And, and that all affects us in a certain way. So we have dharma aspects, if you're a Buddhist, that affects us and causes or not causes certain things to happen in our life. And last but not least, mind. Mind has a lot to do with what happens to us. And I don't know if you were following this, this story out of Las Vegas about the woman who got shot in the head just an amazing story of being a vigilante and losing. But you know, they, they had some issues with a neighbor of hers, and they, he, they were, he, she was teaching her daughter how to drive, and something happened. And she went home and got her son with a gun to go get this guy. And this guy had a gun too, and he shot, and she got shot in the head. And you just go, wow. If she had taken like 10 deep breaths, you know, it would have all been different. You know, it, it, this hatred and anger, one of the three poisons that Buddhism talks about, in the mind, forced her into the situation and ended her life. So there are five reasons why stuff happens. So when we're in the hospital and we're either getting better or we're dying, there's no one to blame. There's five to blame. Okay, now this is some thoughts from an article I was reading. Buddhism stresses the importance of death because the awareness of death prompted the Buddha to perceive the ultimate futility of worldly concerns and pleasures. Now you think about it. This really helps put things into perspective. You know, you got a lot of money. You don't have much money. You got a big house. You got no house. You got great clothes. You want great clothes, blah, blah, blah. And at the back of your mind, if this little recording is going on, you know, I'll be dead and all this stuff doesn't matter a bit. And this is the perfect day to talk about it because tonight, just down the road from us, will be the Academy Awards with a lot of very special, important people. (laughs) 
<laughs> Buddha taught that death was natural, undeniable, unavoidable, inescapable. And to see death not as an isolated event, but one of the changes in the never-ending cycle of changes. Death is significant because it shows us the impermanence of our life. That everything changes all the time. And you're young, you're middle-aged, you're old, you're alive, you're dead. It continues, it continues, it continues. To Buddhists, death is an important reminder to live life well. You know? And, and again, I, 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 we have an interesting life and we have a good life. You know? And, and, and I talked about having an interesting life as being the one that I've chosen, which may not necessarily be good, according to some people who value different things than I do. And then we have the people that have the good life, but it's not interesting. And, and, and you know what? Sometimes when you try to make your good life interesting, you end up in jail. <laughs> it's just... So there's like a happy balance in there someplace, where you can have a little good and a little interesting, and then you die. Preparation for death is a central feature in Buddhism. In explaining the perception of death to his disciples, the Buddha said, seeing with wisdom the end of life in others and comparing this to a lamp kept in a windy place, one should meditate on death. Just as in this world, beings who once enjoyed great prosperity will die, even so one day I will die too. Death will indeed come to me. Now, this is, the Buddha said that. And the Buddha, he's like the perfect guy. He worked really hard, 550 lifetimes, to become the perfect guy. And finally, as Siddhartha, at the age of 35, he succeeded. And he did everything just the way it was supposed to be done. And yet, he died too. And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about Buddhism is that the founder of Buddhism died. And I could relate to that, because I'm going to die too. You know, and I'm not going to be resurrected in any Christian sense. I'll be reborn to die again. And again. (laughs) And again. According to the venerable Sogyal Rinpoche, In the introduction to the revised edition of the Tibetan book of Living and Dying, death is the most crucial moment of our lives, and each and every one of us should be able to die in peace and fulfillment, knowing that we will be surrounded by the best in spiritual care. Thus, preparation for death is an important part of Buddhism, not only to ensure that a person dies with an undiluted peaceful mind, but also to use the act of dying to link this life with subsequent existences as a transition point to the next life. So we're talking about a really, really important moment in our life. Maybe the most important moment because it will determine our next life. And we have to die in order to be reborn again. And you want some really good people around you. You want the kind of people who will encourage you to die. And they are hard to find. Your relatives 
At least the ones that like you will not encourage you to die. Your friends won't encourage you to die either because they like you. Your dogs and cats won't encourage you to die either because they like you as well. You feed them every day. So you need to find like this Buddhist person in your life who says, yeah, you know what? It's really okay to die. And this is how you do it. And so when a monk or nun or a Dharma teacher goes into the hospital to help the Buddhists die, we are not there to give them hope. This life is coming to a close. We are there to encourage their transition, which can be a really difficult task because that means the monk or nun or Dharma teacher will now go into the process of dying with them. And it is a painful and sad process. Even though everyone has to do it, everyone will do it, it's still sad to say goodbye, but we need to do that in order so the next folks can say hello to the newly born infant. A Buddhist patient needs alertness as well as a positive and calm attitude if they wish to perform religious practices such as quiet reflection, meditation, gentle chanting, and prayer. The part that we really need to understand is we're going to the hospital to practice. We're going to practice dying. And this is a fascinating concept to me that, that I don't hear other religions talking about practice to die. Because death is natural and will happen all by itself. But for a Buddhist, we, we are practicing ego death. Now, one of the things I take with me, and when little Leo died, the cat, he was listening to this too. Much better than television, much better than Oprah, Buddhist chanting on a little chip that goes over and over and over again until the only thing you can think about is this little tune. These are free. Very hard to find, though, because they are free. (laughs) Just the way life works. I don't know why. So, we're talking about practicing meditation. Now, you're in the hospital, you're practicing meditation. Mindfulness is a bit different, and this little article talks about mindfulness meditation, because when you're doing your mindfulness in the hospital as you're dying, there are three things you want to see and understand and completely know to be true. They are anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. By understanding in an intimate way those three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, it allows you to let go of this lifetime. It is a process of letting go. That's the deal. Samatha meditation is much different. When the Buddha died, he did samatha meditation. He didn't do vipassana meditation. And the reason I think he didn't do vipassana meditation is because the purpose of vipassana meditation is to achieve nirvana. That's it. And he did that. 
at the age of 35. He no longer practiced Vipassana meditation after the age of 35, but continued to practice Samatha meditation until the day he died, till the moment he died. It said in his death, he went into the fourth jhana, a very deep state of concentration, beyond duality, beyond time and space. Only one characteristic was available to him at that level of samatha meditation, and that was perfect balance of mind or equanimity, or we could say profound acceptance of the way things were and are. That's the place you want to be if you're doing samatha meditation, to be in that place of perfection and everything is unfolding just the way it's supposed to. That's how you want to die. If there's one thing that's happening that's not supposed to happen, there's an urgency to change it, and we are simply one of the contributing factors that change any situation. We are not the only factor. So chances are we're going to have to die with that sort of imperfection in our death process, and we may not feel comfortable. This practice would be more intense at the point of death, as it is the last chance for the practitioner to attain perfect bliss and come to terms with impermanence, suffering, and not-self. Many high-level Buddhist practitioners may decline pain medications or limit their uses, and some may be able to use meditation and mind training to help them manage their pain and their suffering. Meditation is one of the non-pharmacological measures that have been tested and thought to be able to facilitate patient comfort. Now, most of us are probably going to want a little medication to go with our meditation. And the reason is because we're going to be dealing with physical pain. And what the Buddha said, physical pain is not optional. Suffering is. And the difference between pain and suffering is this. Suffering happens when we don't want to have the pain. Okay, so suffering happens when we want things to be different than they are. And if you don't want to die, then you may not be happy with your situation. So how much pain medication to take? How much clarity is necessary in your meditation practice to allow you in your last moment of life on earth to achieve enlightenment? Because until that last breath is taken, there's always a possibility that you will achieve enlightenment. You do not know how long you have been practicing or how long it will take you to achieve that transcendent state. So you could take a lot of pain medication if it's really physically uncomfortable. But I'm thinking the doctor or the nurse in palliative care may be able to suggest a combination of drugs to reduce the pain and yet not take away all your clarity. So this is something we really need to think about as Buddhist meditators. Clarity and kindness are the two most important aspects of our Buddhist path. And we need to be kind to ourselves in this final transition, but in order to do that, we need the clarity necessary. To share 
a story that I've shared before. When I was bitten by the cat, I had to go in for an operation to drain all the bacteria and poisons from my finger. And it required me to go under the knife and under the anesthetics. And I met the guy who was going to put me under, and I said, hey, you know, I meditate. He wasn't impressed. (laughs) And I feel it's important that I have clarity in order to succeed in my meditation practice. Can you just give me as little as necessary to put me under? Not overdo it. And I have heard stories about people who went under deeply and came out differently. Never to regain the faculties they had before they went under. So I'm like really nervous, you know, because not that the finger thing, they're going to cut open the finger, but you know, that heals, but this mind thing. And for a Buddhist, this mind is all we're working on. You know, we're not working on the body so much, though we can do yoga and tai chi and all those fun things, but it's this consciousness that is the most important thing. And so I went under, and, and wow, when you go under, you just, there's like nothing, you know. You just like, you know, high and then bang. And so then I woke up, you know, and, and I'm in this room that I didn't know, hadn't been in before. And, and the first thing I did was started to do multiplication tables, just to see if it was all working, you know. And it seemed to be fine. And then I recited the Heart Sutra, and all the words were there. And I said, okay, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm going to be okay. This is what we're talking about, though, when we go in to die, is we need this sort of clarity. And we need to be as clear as possible. We don't want to over-medicate. And if you know about Aldous Huxley and how he passed away, you may consider his method over-medication. He was injected with LSD and went out in a bang. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's one way to do it, but talk about deluded, you know. <laughs> so I'm going to sort of like, hopefully, at the time I'm ready to go, that if I have something to say about it, I'm going to use as little medication as possible to keep the clarity. But then I could be playing tennis and get a heart attack and not have anything to say about it. One never knows. But we need to practice and get ready for this. We need to think about what we want. And I tell you what, before you go in that hospital, you need to write out your final orders of not plugging you in or not doing any exaggerated form of recitation to keep you alive so you can just die again. You really need to do that. And most hospitals encourage you to do that. And you need to talk to your family and friends about what you want to do, you know? And don't forget the will, because your kids are going to fight over all that money and stuff. So get that done. Maybe give it to PETA or something, you know? Um, Many, okay, it is important to allow the dying Buddhists to maintain a clear, calm state of mind, to allow them to penetrate the true nature and reality of dying by finishing the last meditation. Wow. Now, wouldn't that just, that's so profound, you know? And I had this sort of image of of myself, and I'd be sitting on a bed in full lotus, you know? And I'd be plugged in, and they'd be monitoring me. And I would just sort of die in full lotus and get rigor mortis, and they couldn't stretch me out. (laughs) 
And I thought, what a way to go. What a way to go. I don't know if it's going to happen. Asking Buddhist patients about their ability to meditate and pray will increase the effectiveness of care planning. If the patient prefers to meditate peacefully, nurses can help within the limitations of the available resources to eliminate distractions and noises, thus making the environment more conducive for meditation. Birth and death, sickness and aging are part of the human existence. The Buddhist attitude toward dying and death makes a great deal of difference to the way in which they experience them. We are products of our practice. We relate to the world in a little different way because of that practice. I don't expect everybody to understand why I feel or see things the way I do. I give them a break. But I also realize that because of my practice of 30 years or so, I have changed the way I perceive the world and I have become a minority much like being a Caucasian in Koreatown. (laughs) But that's okay. One day we'll all be minorities, and we need to think about our death and our demise, and we need to think about that in a way that allows us to live fully and engage the world around us. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Yes. Um, well, it's amazing that this is what you're talking about today because uh, yesterday, I, death is always like a factor on the 21st of February because it was uh, the anniversary of my father's passing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's been 29 years. And to me, it's not the pain of me missing him because I was five years old. But every year, it's just the absence, like, of what it could have been. And basically, I'm just wondering if maybe you have any insight in that, like, what can I do to help in that? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how we can get caught in past and future. And, and thinking that it could have been different and better, but it could always be different and worse as well. Um, I think the idea in Buddhism is to really appreciate and fully experience the present moment we live in. That the future is simply a way that we use the present moment experience to plan for things that may or may not happen. A lot of people take their Social Security at 62 because they figure they're not going to be alive at 66. And, and, and it's hard to fault them on that. We have no idea what's going to happen in 10 years, let alone 10 days. Um, when we look back, we also see how things could have been done differently, better or worse. And sometimes we have feelings of guilt or stupidity. Why didn't I know then what I know now? But we can't ever do that. And, and so it's dealing with the mind and the ego, which, is, which has created uh, the story of our life. But it's just a story. It has nothing to do with our life. All those memories of what happened have been edited and censored. They have been made into something generally better than it was, in some cases, depending on mind states, sometimes worse than it was. 
but it was never like it was. And all the dreams and, and hopes we have for the future will never, ever be that way. Impossible. Why is that the case? Because we're using current information to predict something that hasn't happened yet. And by the time we get to that place that it's beginning to happen, we'll have much more information. You know, it's like somebody said the other day, wouldn't it be cool to talk to some dead people and see how they feel about life today? But, you know, depending on how long they've been dead, they wouldn't have a clue what was going on today. We've got computers and LED TVs and all the things that we take for granted or trying to use. I know the older I get, the more I resist new stuff because I just something else I got to learn and eventually forget to learn the next thing. And so they're not going to give us much help. And all those people we used to be, all those dead people we used to be, aren't going to be much help to us either because they lived in a different time and place. Now, I'm going to be 66 in April, and what I've come to understand clearly is this is not the world I was born in. I'm living in a brand new world. Uh, The world I was born in had Donna Reed on TV. And I've just been watching it. It's, It's on TV again, and I'm just thinking how wonderful it would have been if life was like that. But, of course, it never was. We had some really good writers and directors, and they made it seem a little better than it always is. And that's what our ego does for us, writing and directing for us, and how it could be or should be. And we have to appreciate the skill in which the ego writes the story of our life, but I think we have to understand that it is just a story. It has nothing to do with our life anymore. So as you think about how it could have been, it's probably better for a meditator to think about how it is. You know, And if we have clothes and a, a full stomach and a place to live, pretty good. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Yeah? I've noticed something uh, in my practice. Uh, I didn't really... Care so strongly and intimately about the world around me when I wasn't practicing, and uh, when I when I when I meditate about death, it makes everything in the moment that much more poignant and beautiful. So there's this paradox for me in that I'm like I'm meditating more on death and understanding my uh, <clears throat> movement towards that. that I feel things more intensely, experience things more intensely. So there's this paradox of like, you know, letting go because I'm going to die, and yet I love it so much more now. I love people and I love the nature around me and the animals in my life. Um, So it's just kind of a weird paradox of practice that before I didn't care as much, uh, but I was afraid of death. Now I meditate on death, I care a lot more, and I feel like I'm holding on more. Mm, yeah. It does. I would recommend driving on the 405. (laughs) (laughs) And you won't love life as much as you. (laughs) 
So I think it's, that's fascinating, and that's one of the paradoxes of our meditation practice, is that uh, we start out alone. You know, we've decided we're going to meditate, and, and, and most of our meditation happens when we're alone. It's rare and special when we get together with a group of people to meditate together. So here we are, you're meditating alone, you're going inside, seeing sometimes these forms of consciousness you haven't been aware of before, and you're investigating the, the pains and pleasures of having a body sitting cross-legged on the floor for hours at a time. And, and, and you start to wake up to the fact that, yes, you are interconnected and interdependent with all phenomena. And you're looking at all these things in a very personal, intimate way, in a way you haven't before, because you were separate from them. And you were doing your stuff, and they were doing their stuff. And, and now you come to a place where you have to let all that stuff go, because you have to check out. And... And maybe a thought to have would be the old simile of the ocean and the wave. That you're becoming aware of all the other waves, uh, but one day you have to go back to the ocean. And, and all those other waves are connected to the ocean, so you're not really leaving them behind. They'll be joining you sooner or later. Um, but you'll always be interconnected and interdependent. You're never able to do anything alone ever again once you've gotten to that place in your meditation practice. And that may give you a bit of peace in the transition. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Um, sort of pursuant to what you just said, what um, kind of practices would you suggest for cultivating an acceptance of ego death? Hmm. Well, the best practice would be meditation. And why would that be the case? Because every time we meditate, we're killing our ego for a period of time. And, and killing may be a bit strong. We, we're anesthetizing it, you know? And so you're sitting there for... And, and this probably has more to do with samatha meditation than it does with vipassana meditation. So samatha meditation is going to, into a deep state of one-pointedness, choiceless awareness, where you leave past and future, body and earth behind, and come to this present moment experience. And it's, it's radical and it's revelatory. You, you're going to see things and experience things you never thought imagined before. Okay, so you, you sit down and the gong rings and you go into your focus of breath or sound or light, whatever it is, and you get deeper and deeper and deeper. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you, you no longer have this duality of past and future. You don't know how much time has passed or how much time there is to go. And, and, and then you get to this place where the where the ego starts to t- starts to go into sleep mode, and um, and and when that happens, the body disappears because the body map is part of the ego and consciousness, and so it doesn't feel like you're even sitting on the floor anymore. You might be floating or drifting, you know, because the ego now is starting to to slow down and and lose control of his empire or her empire and then the ears shut down and you can't hear anything and then you can't smell anything or taste anything or touch anything and nothing everything closes down and becomes a completely internal trip okay then the gong rings and you resurrect you sort of you know manifest again in the way you were almost before you went into meditation but each time we come out of that meditation, that samatha meditation, it seems to me we're just a little bit more transparent 
than we were before. We're not, you know, it's, it's like you're starting to, to see through the stuff, through the ego, through who you are, through your career pattern, through all the stuff that seems so solid and rigid and unchanging. Now you can see beyond that, and it's not quite um, ever going to be the way it used to be, which can be really freaky and scary, too. So, so now I say you meditate twice a week, and now you're killing ego twice a week. Okay, and then you do that for a couple months, and then you do that for a couple years, and then you do that for a couple decades. So what are you going to do when you're on the bed dying? You're going to meditate, and you're going to go to that place where there is no body, and there is no time, and there is no past, and there is no future. You're going to go to that place. That's exactly what the Buddha did. When he was dying, he went through the jhanas into the fourth one, and he went to that place. He had been to thousands, if not tens of thousands of times before, because he knew that was the refuge. He knew that was the place to be to transition. And that's something that should maybe, as someone who's been practicing more of a sazen slash, I guess, insight meditation, two different practices. Well, in some minds they are, but they're always connected. You do one, you do the other, too. Go ahead. So, so it means so now should, from, instead of doing uh, vipassana, go do samatha? I guess that's my question, or is it a matter of um, practicing both? No, it's, it, you don't need to, it, because as I said before, in the vipassana, okay, rather than going into a deep state of one-pointedness, choiceless awareness, as Suzuki Roshi would say, now you go into a state of deep reflection on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. I'm sorry? And that's through the body scanning? That is through the body scanning. That's one of the aspects of body scanning. allows you to see that mm-hmm. in a focused way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have two ways to do it. You can, you can go for bliss and happiness of the present moment experience of not-self, or you can do this sort of you know, mindfulness meditation and, and see the true nature of reality, and then die. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so, in both cases, the transition will be um, much better than if you hadn't done that. Uh, and, and especially if you're not like a Christian or God-based, you know, because there's like not a whole lot of stuff that's going to help you do this, you know. And, and so, if you, if you believe in God, God's a good way to go, you know, because God will help you die, and then God will give you a place to stay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I've actually thought a lot about uh, death and um, life and death and how we relate to it. And I have a slightly different take, and just would like to get your your reflection on that. In that, um, maybe maybe how we experience and how we talk about death is the death of our ability to experience the world and experience the connection with others. <laughs> But I've also thought about, for me at least, that maybe our death is, is, when, is when we are truly forgotten by our community, by our peoples, that, that maybe the Buddha isn't dead, that he lives within us and in his teachings and in how we remember him and how that impacts our lives. Um, so I'd just like to get your, your reflection on what it would mean for us to you know, think about our life and living beyond our death 
living beyond like how we how we impact others as a way of eternal life. Yeah, that's what my mother did. Um, my 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 mother wrote a couple books, and and before she died, she was really happy that she had written them because they'll live on long after she's gone. So that was her like little bit of eternalism, you know. Which is fine, but if you really start to look at the Buddhist philosophy, you start to see that we only exist one moment. That, that there's nothing that lasts any longer than that. Everything we do is always for the first time, which can just trip people out completely. So, how many people have you been in your short lifetime? You've been an infinite amount of people in your short lifetime. So, so then you get to that place in your practice and you say, well, who's going to live long after I'm gone? You know? And if there's nobody living now, there's probably less of you living after you die. But you'll be in the minds of others, but they will have highly edited versions of you. you know? And some of them will think of you as a wonderful person and some will think of you as a jerk. And they'll live on and on, and then, and then they'll die, and their stories about you will be modified again and again and again. And the final edit will, be, will not resemble you at all, because it has gone through so many filters of humans and decades of how you should be, could be, would be, if you were still here. So, you know, um, in my own small world, I'm concerned about my website because I would like it to continue a little longer after, the night, after I'm dead. So I'm going to have to find people to take over my website and keep it going. But it's that, you know, and then the pictures of me on the Internet, you know, I'll always look like that on the Internet, you know, <laughs> instead of bones and worms in the ground. <laughs> And, and it's just an, an odd, I think, an, an odd game we play with ourselves. And it's the ego saying, I'm not going to go easily. I'm going to live as long as I can, any way I can. And if I have to make up eternalism, I will do it. Then I'll die. So it's, it's fascinating. Now, you take all that and you stick it into your meditation practice. And you say, okay, for 30 minutes, I'm not going to be anyone. I got nothing to do. I've done nothing. I'm just sitting here and I got sore knees. So I'm going to sit as a sore kneed person for 30 minutes. And then the gong rings and then you somebody again, you know, and you're talking and have tea and you leave and life is wonderful. And then you die again in that 30 minutes. And slowly but surely, those little fingers that have gripped to your identity will sort of loosen and relax and, 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 and your identity will then manifest in a variety of ways depending on situations you find yourself in. To give you a perfect example, I hate buying new glasses. Though I love glasses because they always add another personality to your face. You know, the big ones and small ones and wireless ones and wow, there's so many things. So I'm looking in the mirror at the glasses that I'm thinking of purchasing, and, and I think, I look great. This is just how I wanted to look my whole life. And then I walk out the front door of the eyewear business, and people are sort of casting, you know, they're looking away from me, like, or they're snickering, or they're laughing. How could anybody buy those glasses? And yet, in my mind, they were perfect in fashion statement of just what I needed to do. So I, I, I think to myself, what is wrong with my self-image? 
It, it's not the self-image that, that other people have of me, that I have my own little thing, and it's always changing, and depending what glasses I'm wearing or clothes I'm wearing, I manifest in really interesting and different ways. So which one is the true me? I haven't got a clue. And, and I, I, so now when I buy glasses, I like to take people with me, you know, to say, yeah, those are good. No, those aren't so good. Those might work. Those, you know, good casual pair, but not for the robes, you know. <laughs> and, and so what is this self? You know, what is this thing? It's pretty, it's pretty interesting when you start investigating that. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, can you help me around this, this idea that the way things are is exactly the way they should be or need to be? Or are. Maybe not should be, but the way things are are the way things are. Well, that's, yeah, I'm good with that. Okay. Now, you put a should or could in there, it changes the whole dynamic. You know what I'm saying? Because most of the stuff, this is how it is. And last year we had 20,000 hit and runs. Is that good? Is that bad? It's the way it is. Okay. Can we change it? Yes. If we all get together, we can change it. Uh, You know, so what we start to see is this is what I have to work with. What I am, what it is, is where I start. And then I go from there. But now, if I say, well, I'm this, right, but somebody else over here, you know, they're in jail, or they're tortured, or they're getting bombed, or they're starving, right? Right. So what do I do with that? So what do you do with that? You can be one of the contributing factors for change. One of the contributing factors. Everything takes 10,000 things to change. So you're one of the 10,000. So you want to change the world? Start by changing yourself, the Buddha might say. And the more you change yourself, the more the world changes, because the Buddha said, you are the world. Your entire world exists in this fathom-long body. Now that means we're in charge of our world. Not the world, but our world. So I look at the world and I see the cruelty to animals. I see the, uh, and, and the, and the animal we're most cruel to is ourselves, humans. Wow. And I'm thinking, will it ever change? And probably not. And, and, and where do I find peace in that statement? I find peace in that statement because the Buddha said, this is samsara, this world is where birth and death occur. For a Buddhist, there is no justice in sansara because there is no lawgiver to determine what is right and wrong. Right and wrong is very philosophical, very cultural, can be religious. Uh, So I look at this stuff and I'm thinking to myself, is that right or is that wrong? And how does a Buddhist ascertain that? And it came to me one day that a Buddhist would say, more suffering, wrong. Less suffering, right. So we can start there before we start changing the institutions. We can start looking around and saying, how can I change the suffering of my local world? What do I need to do? And a lot of people say, start with your family. 
And then the, the do-gooder says, that's the last place I want to start. I want to change the world first, then I'll work on the family. You know? so, so we have an opportunity at many different levels to change things. But then are we going to change them for the better or the worse? And a lot of good intentions have turned out to be the worst choice you could ever make. So then you have to say, where are those intentions coming from as a Buddhist? And a Buddhist would say, if they are based in generosity, compassion, or wisdom, chances are those intentions will manifest in speech and action in a skillful way and reduce suffering in the world. But if they're based in greed, hatred, and delusion, it may create more suffering rather than less. So we have to know our minds in order to know what our intentions are And that's why the meditation practice for a Buddhist is so important, because it pretty much starts there. Knowing your mind allows you then to monitor your speech and action in a very skillful way, and let the good manifest and hold back the bad until that intention passes or dies. You know, and for instance, a bad intention for me, would be buying the 24-pack of Hostess Cupcakes at Food for Less for only $5. (laughs) Now, I've got to wait for that intention to pass so I don't buy that box of Hostess Cupcakes. And it doesn't take long for it to pass. I get distracted. I eat something else. It's fine. So we start to see, yeah, good intentions, work on it right away. Bad intentions, hold off a little bit. They'll die sooner or later. And, and we start looking at the whole world around us as part of our practice. And when we start doing that, we, we do make a change in subtle ways that may not even be observable to us, but do affect the world. Because if all things are interconnected and interdependent, if we have one moment of loving kindness manifesting in our world, it ripples through the entire world. So, so, (laughs) okay. Yesterday, I, this sort of nasty side of me came out, and I grabbed this parking spot. Mm. I might, probably should have given it to the other person that was trying to get it, because she was turning around to try to get it. She's got a handicap thing or whatever. My spot, right? <laughs> so I thought about that later. I said, well, you know, you were just being kind of nasty, right? So that, you know, there's that, right? And here I am trying to, you know, turn it out of the world. But that is that is the first step. Yeah. The first step is taking a half step back and seeing how we manifested in that moment. And so maybe the next time, yeah. you know, you'll be a little kinder and show more generosity. Now, how do I, you know, so I, I, now I feel bad. I feel like, oh, I was a bad person, right? Yes. I mean, and so I, I, I'm okay with guilt because I, mean, I did a mistake, right? Right. Well, a Buddhist never feels guilt, and a Buddhist is never bad. A Buddhist is unskillful which has a lot less baggage. So you were unskillful yesterday and created suffering. That's a lot easier to live with. Now you say to yourself, how can I be more skillful and create less suffering? So if you come up to that situation again, maybe you can work out a different, maybe you can work out a compromise. Or just give them the parking space because we don't own it anyway, do we? 
You know, this, this territorial thing can get us into trouble sometimes. You know. But isn't it fun to be a human? Because we can analyze and see how the story could be different if only. So we have to make that if only happen. Sometimes. I get like that too. And it's even worse for me because I'm in the business of being good. <laughs> you know? And when, when, when my unskillful side arises, I, I just have to really work on myself. I just say, wow, how could you be like that? Again, guilt. And I say, well, I guess, not a Buddha yet. And I need to do a little more practice and read a lot more books. And then the next time it happens, maybe I'll be just a little different then. And I always will because it only happens once. So it'll be a brand new time and I'll have a brand new chance to make a different choice. So welcome to the humans, you know. (laughs) Thank you. And we are past time and I know everybody wants to go see the red carpet thing. So (laughs) let's do loving kindness for all the people like us. You see? Who make unskillful choices and create suffering. And one day we'll be past that. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief. (laughs) 